don't know about you, if you have a really good birth story in your family, maybe it's one of your kids, but I generally find that a good birth story doesn't necessarily mean it was a really good birth. Uh, in fact, they're often kind of inversely correlated. And um, when my second son was born, there's a bit of a story attached to it. Um, I was, at the time, um, meant to be at an academic conference in upstate New York. I was dirt poor student, just in case that makes it sound like I was high-flying jet set or something like that. No, it was just like this one thing I um, needed to do as part of my doctorate at the time. And um, when Hilly came in and told me that she was pregnant, I said, oh, that's great. And then I said, seven, eight, nine months. It's going to clash with this conference. And Hilly's like, don't worry about it. It'll work out. It'll be fine. And as we got closer and closer, um, the due date kept being brought sort of back forward or, you know, I don't know if they officially changed the due date, but the date that the baby was expected to have to be delivered. Um, And Hilly, uh, long story, but we had to go with an elective C-section. So that's like when you you schedule it in and you kind of know in theory when this baby's going to come. And so the plan was perfect. And the plan was that I would fly in um, after my conference at about seven in the morning into Auckland. Dad would pick me up take me down to Waikato Hospital, and about 9.30 a.m., uh, they would be performing the surgery and lifting the child out as I come in. And um, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I was at in this little place called Syracuse, which is upstate New York, and um, I had to go Syracuse, JFK, LAX, Auckland. And um, I left the conference early just to make sure that I would actually get there, and I waltzed into Syracuse Airport, which is sort of like Hamilton Airport, just very small and um, and went to check in, and they said, sorry, the flight's not going to leave for at least another five hours. And the flight, my flight at JFK was about um, six hours away. And I was like, that's not going to work. I, and I explained the baby situation. She said, there's no other flights. If I were you, I would book a car, like rent a car, and try to drive there. And I said, how long is the drive? And she said, it's six hours. And so... But what option did I have? So I went and rented a car, and I'm kind of in a panic mode, and, you know, I'm telling everyone, baby's coming, got to get me on there. And so they rushed me through as fast as they can, and within a few minutes, I'm on the road, on roads I'm totally unfamiliar with, haven't driven in the States for many years, hadn't lived there for a while, and, um, and just bombing through this part of the States, which is pretty picturesque, apparently, but I didn't notice. Um, and about 30, oh, not even 30 minutes, maybe 15 minutes into this trip, I realized I really need to go to the bathroom. Just, just number one. But the problem is that the, um, the, the maps are telling me an estimated time of arrival. Now, um, chicken is at, like, the chicken cutoff is at 5.30 p.m., and it's telling me I'll get there at 5.29 p.m. And, um, and so I'm like, I don't need to take five minutes to go off this motorway and go to, th- but I don't have five minutes. And um, so I just hold it. And I've never had that situation in my adult life where I just had to hold on. And for an extended period of time, I'll tell you, it is really, really uncomfortable. It was extremely painful. And um, the whole time as I'm traveling six hours through New York State, through Scranton, Pennsylvania, for those office fans, um, because it kind of skirts through Pennsylvania, the, the GPS ETA is going up 529 to 530 to 528 to 529. The whole time, it's like I cannot stop and, and go to the bathroom. And um, I get to uh, New York City, and I stop on this bridge where there's a toll 
and you kind of get in this bit of a line and there's three or four cars and I knew I had an empty bottle, like a water bottle in the boot and I jumped out and grabbed the bottle and got in the car back in because it's just stationary and, but I can't, I just can't. So I just leave it, but I'm in absolute pain and, um, and I get through the tolls and then I take off and then it just comes to a grinding halt and I'm just like hit New York rush hour traffic and all of a sudden all these construction alerts come up and I see that ETA go up to sort of 6 o'clock and then 6.30 and I ended up being about nearly an hour late, didn't make the flight, didn't make it home, Watched, um, met my baby boy Caleb over FaceTime in LA airport. Um, so um, that's a very memorable birth story for me because it wasn't a particularly smooth sailing kind of birth um, and, and I'm probably making it sound like it was the drama was at my end, right? Um, but it wasn't. <laughs> I know I actually really gutted that I missed it. Um, but anyway, whatever. Um, you know, we at this time of year, we talk about the most famous birth story. And it wasn't smooth sailing at all, you know. Um, more dramatic than anything we experienced. And um, this baby, this important baby, born in the most um, disgusting kind of circumstances um, and less than ideal. That is the story that we often focus on and remember at this time of year, and rightly so. I want to draw our attention to maybe if not the birth story, the just after birth story that maybe we spend a little less time on, and it's in Luke chapter 2. In this part, this is about a week after Jesus has been born, and For male Jews, a week after they're born, you know, babies, they're taken and and circumcised. That was what they did. And uh, so that's what Joseph and Mary are going to do with Jesus. And I'm going to pick it up. So we're reading from Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to pick it up from verse 25. I don't have the uh, passage up on the screen, but I will put parts of the passage up later. So um, just follow along with me or listen along for now. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. I know what it's like sometimes when you listen to a long passage of, the, of Scripture. It's sometimes hard to track. So let's just kind of paint this picture again. 
here's this young teenage couple taking this baby boy, one week old, to the temple to be circumcised as all good Jews would be. And here are these two people who are essentially prophets. It doesn't call Simeon a prophet, but he acts in a prophetic way. The Holy Spirit is upon him. And then you've got Anna, who it says is a prophet. And these two are old figures, and they're expecting the redemption of Israel. That's like the, the time where God would send his anointed king. We call that, um, that figure Messiah or Christ, just he, uh, the Hebrew or Greek word for the same thing. So they're waiting for God's special king to come to rescue Israel in quite an earthly sense, you know, basically to um, enable Israel to live at peace, for them to flourish, to enter into a kind of golden age. And that's what these Jewish people are hoping for because their lives are otherwise hard yakka. And Simeon has understood from God that while he won't see this golden age in its fullness, he will see the one, the Messiah, who will usher in this golden age. Anna, too, she's a prophet. That means God speaks to people through her. She hears a word from God and then delivers that to people. And Anna is a similar kind of figure. She hangs out in the temple all the time, the place of God's special presence. And she sounds like she's spent much of her adult life there. She was only married seven years. Her husband passed away. She's been single ever since, just praising God and just waiting for this redemption of Israel, the coming of the Messiah. The Spirit is on Simeon. God is speaking to Anna. And as Mary and Joseph walk in with Jesus, they both recognize this is the one. He's the Messiah. And he's here in nappies. And they celebrate. They're excited. Maybe they're not going to see the full thing. We know Jesus isn't going to start his public ministry for another 30-odd 30, 30 years. But they're excited because they've seen the one who's going to usher it all in. He's a source of hope for them. Now, we're going to um, zoom in on a part of this passage where Simeon speaks because it's a little bit cryptic and, and requires a little bit of digging. But in order for us to understand what Simeon says here, this old man full of the Spirit, it helps us to go back a chapter to the beginning of um, chapter, uh, sorry, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, because the Gospel of Luke, and this is Tim Mackey from Bible Project, says, says this. He says the beginning of Luke is like a musical. And it is, because if you ever look, even if you just flip through the first few pages, you'll see like there's lots of poetry there. There's lots of songs that are being sung. And Mary sings a song, and just a snippet of her song says this. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. Can you see that what she's saying here in her song, which is about who her baby boy would become, who this Messiah figure or how this Messiah figure would operate, is a, is a reversal. It's a tipping upside down because rulers are brought down and the humble are lifted up. And the hungry are filled, and the rich go away empty. It's, it's a turning on its head. And this is a huge theme, particularly in the Gospel of Luke. 
Luke is always writing about the poor and the, the marginalized, we might say, that we might say in our modern parlance, um, the oppressed. He's always writing about them and talking about how Jesus' message and Jesus' kingdom that he was ushering in. Remember, he is a king. That is what Messiah means, a king with a kingdom. He's showing that this kingdom doesn't operate like the normal kingdoms that we're used to. It operates in a kind of upside-down way, or I want to say today, inside-out, because it's a grand reversal. And so when Simeon comes and picks this baby up, almost like Simba-style, you know, from, from the Lion King, and says, this is the new king, or the king-to-be, and he starts to speak these kind of prophetic words over him, some of his words are kind of an echo of what Mary is saying here. It says this in Luke 2, just one chapter later, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. See, that's a reversal, a turning upside down. And then he goes on to say some other things that are slightly different, but continue on in the same line. And to be a sign that will be spoken against. So already here, one, one week old, we know that this Jesus is not going to be smooth sailing. It's not going to be easy. He's going to be a controversial figure. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. People are going to be exposed for who they are. And that sounds like a threat to who? Insiders. People who are at the top of the heap. The people with the power, they don't want their hearts and their motives and their intentions exposed because they're the ones that have got something to lose. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. So there's going to be tragedy. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be pain for Mary. This idea of this upside down or inside out kingdom is really important for us to understand. It's essential for understanding the book of Luke, and it's essential for understanding Jesus' message in general. Jesus was a controversial figure, a sign that would be spoken against. Why? Well, often it was because he was telling outsiders that they could come in. It was the people that were typically or traditionally cut off, cut off from what God was doing. They were the ones that Jesus was welcoming in. Something else that Simeon says kind of illustrates this a bit. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Can we just hit pause for a little moment, a little technical kind of thing to point out here? When we think about salvation, we usually think of that as something that happens to us after we die. It's about eternal life and all that sort of thing. It is that, but the word salvation in Scripture, and perhaps especially when Luke uses salvation, is even bigger than that. Salvation um, can be healing. Salvation can be restoration for people. Salvation is this big project that God is doing, one part of which is eternal life. But it's all these other sorts of things as well. And so salvation, perhaps not, is not understood best as just something that happens at some point when we die. But here, Simeon talks about salvation as a person. He's seen salvation, and it's in this Jesus. 
which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So he's talking here not just about what this Messiah would mean for Israel, but what this Messiah would mean for everyone all over the world. And Israel often forgot this. You know, they sometimes forgot and thought that their God was just the God of them. They, they had almost like a monopoly on God. But there are lots of hints in the Old Testament that say that, that actually God was always interested in bringing all people to himself, all nations. And Israel's job was to be a light to those nations. That's their job. But it is for all nations. Remember what God says to Abraham. I'm going to bring a blessing to all nations through you. So what Simeon's saying here is actually a quotation from Isaiah 42 and 47 combined. And so he's making a quotation here or a kind of prophecy that's drawn from a prophecy from Isaiah. And then we see the fulfillment, I think, of this prophecy in the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is written by the same author, Luke. And not only are they both written by Luke, but most biblical scholars believe that Luke actually wrote them to be like volume one and volume two. For that reason, um, Bible scholars will sometimes just call the two books together, Luke-Acts. And, and so he, Luke is writing this knowing that he's also going to write Acts. And so when we get to Acts chapter two, the giving of the Spirit, he write, Luke writes, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. What this is saying is the outsiders come in. Jesus is saying through the work of the Spirit here, outsiders come in. And throughout the book of Luke, he's saying to outsiders, come in. Have you ever heard those words, come in, and it's been really good? Another time, we, my wife and I were in the States, this is before we had kids, um, it was the, the iPhone had just been released, and it was so new that you couldn't get it in New Zealand. And so I got it for Christmas that year. We were in the States for Christmas. My wife is American. We were seeing her family and I got the first iPhone. You had to like jailbreak it, download some special software to actually enable it to be used in New Zealand. And it was our last night in the States, and we were staying at an airport um, near Seattle, or in Seattle, and we were about to fly out to New Zealand. And I knew that if I wanted a case for my new iPhone, my beloved new iPhone, um, that it was a really cool thing in those days. Like now you get a new gadget, device, whatever, and it's like, ah. but in those days, this was like groundbreaking. And I really wanted a case, and we had time to burn. We got to the hotel, and we had all the time in the world because we were there till, well, our flight didn't leave until the next morning. We didn't have anything to do, and I said to Hilly, you know what? There's an Apple store. I've looked it up on the maps. There's an Apple store. It's about a 30-minute walk away, and I'll just go and get a case, and I'll be right back in like an hour and a half. And, um, and so I headed off, and about 10 minutes down the road, it started snowing. I had a coat on, but it started snowing. And I started um, going down different routes and hitting dead ends and then turning back. And, and pretty soon, what was meant to be a half-hour walk turned into a three-hour walk. Um, it took me so long to get there because around um, airports, 
you know, the, they're not designed for pedestrians. They're just like motorways everywhere. And then I got there. I shook myself off. Some people laughed at me because I had snow everywhere. I went and bought the case, and I thought, well, okay, at least the trip, the, you know, I know where to go now. And then it was another three hours back. The trip back, I had to um, call my wife on a pay phone. My iPhone wasn't working on the network. And I had to call her to tell her that um, I, was, I, was, I was okay. I was okay, sort of. Um, and I found myself at one point like walking on a motorway, which is not allowed, because I, there were just no footpaths, and I realized that I needed to be on the underpass. So I, there was like a construction tarp there, and I started kind of trying to abseil down from one to the other and got to the bottom and like just, just landed in ankle-deep mud where you, you, know, where you pull your shirt and your shoe kind of get, almost gets left behind. And there were cars spinning out because Seattle folk apparently, uh, my wife tells me, don't know how to drive in snow. So I was like helping cars get started. And eventually, at, like uh, six hours later, at about 9.30 at night, I would get to the hotel just wet, cold, covered in snow. And my wife opens the door and, and she says, come in. No, she doesn't. She says, what happened to you? Where have you been? But then she did say, come in. And I got in and I, you know, got in the shower and I had some dinner and everything was okay again. Now, it's nice when you're out in the cold and been out for a big six-hour walk to be welcomed inside. But it's probably even better when you feel like your life is one where you are an outsider. And someone as special as Jesus, God's special king, says to you, an outsider, outsider, come in. And not only is it special, it's surprising. Jesus was starting a movement, a kingdom. I mean, that's a movement and a half. How do you start a a movement in our world? Well, maybe you... Uh, maybe you get to know some uh, influential people. Maybe you try to get a, a job in, in a politician's office and you start hobnobbing with them and you, you go to all the sort of um, events where there are people with money who like to fund sort of causes and all that sort of thing and, and you work away and you get to know these people and I actually have no idea how you do this. I, you might be able to tell, I have no clue. But something like this, you try to associate with the insiders, the people who are at the top What you don't do is you don't go and find the people who are absolute no-hopers and say, you're my team. And that's what Jesus did. Because his way of operating was his message that this is a kingdom, not for the insiders, it's for the outsiders. Outsider, come in. And it's not that Jesus said, if you are an insider, you've got to get out. But just often that's what happened. Insiders didn't like this. And so they often find themselves on the outside of what God is doing. Outsider come in is a controversial message. No wonder Jesus would be a sign that is spoken against. So for us today, what, is this, what does this mean? Well, a lot of us are insiders in all sorts of ways. Maybe we're insiders here Maybe we're insiders in society, you know, maybe we enjoy a, a quite a high level of privilege. And it's easy for us to arrange our lives in such a way that we uh, really just associate with other insiders and we don't have much to do with the outsider. And when I talk about the outsider here, I mean the kind of people who find themselves on the bottom of the social heap. And it's a question for us to ask individually and collectively is how can we better arrange our lives and, um, 
and organize our or reorganize our priorities in such a way that we are connecting with outsiders and living lives that say, just like Jesus, outsider, come in. Perhaps an even more direct way to think about what this all means for us is, is for yourself. Are you an outsider who Jesus is saying, outsider, come in? It might be that you've made a bunch of mistakes in the past and you feel like you've burned your bridges with God. And Jesus says to you, outsider, come in. It might be that you have debt and you've got all sorts of financial pressure and material need and that feels, it feels like you are at the bottom, uh, on the bottom rung of society and you feel like an outsider. And Jesus says to you, outsider, come in. It might be that you feel lonely, you feel cut off from meaningful human connection and relationship and community, and Jesus says to you, outsider, come in. And all we have to do this Christmas is accept that invitation. So let's pray. King, Messiah, Jesus, we thank you that you came for outsiders. You didn't just welcome the elite. You welcomed some of the least likely people, the prostitutes and the, the sick and the poor and the tax collectors. These were the people you brought together to form your new movement, your kingdom. And really, we are all outsiders who have been welcomed in. And we want to be the kind of people who are still connected to outsiders and welcoming them in. And we pray for all those here who feel like they are an outsider. Perhaps they are disconnected from you, out of relationship with you, and want to be invited in. We pray on their behalf and ask you welcome them into your kingdom, knowing full well that you do, that just an open heart and uh, an acceptance of your invitation, Jesus, is all it takes. We're reminded as we are about to take the, these symbols, this bread, this juice, that reminds us of who this baby and this Messiah would become, somebody who lays down their life for us. We're reminded that your life on earth was controversial because this message of outsiders coming in cost you everything. And so as we take these symbols or these emblems that remind us of that. We praise you for welcoming all us in unconditionally. And may we live the kind of lives who, uh, through which you are able to invite others in as well. This, uh, this season, this Christmas, we want to praise you. You are king of all. You're the king of outsiders. You're the one who welcomes even those who feel they are on the lowest rung into your family, into your kingdom to be a part of what you're doing in this world. So for that, we say thank you. Amen.